Well, good morning, church. Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. If you're new, my name is Doug. I'm the East Campus Pastor, and we're delighted that you're here this morning. We are going to continue in our series called The Beginnings, and really kind of the goal of this series was to go all the way back to the beginning, go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and to look at some foundational truths, some truths that are essential for us that not only help grow our faith, but they help shape the way that we live. And so when we began this journey a few weeks back, we began with looking at who God is. And we, we talked about how God is eternal, but also that same God is intricately involved with his creation. And then we began to look at what God does, how God speaks 10 times. He said, let there be, and what? There was, right? 10 times God speaks, and we saw how God creates. He created Adam from the dust of the ground. We saw how God rested on the seventh day, not out of exhaustion, not because he needed a mental health day, but God rested as an example for you and I of what our work week should look like, a day to stop, to pause, to really endear ourselves closer to him. And then last week we looked at God given man, um, to, uh, God's given man responsibility, and what were those responsibilities? And we looked at two particular responsibilities, one being dominion and the other one being responsibility as it relates to marriage. And we spent most of our time talking about marriage, and we talked about that in the marriage, what God has told humanity, and we know it's a really big deal, because even Jesus echoes Genesis 2.24 when he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father's mother, go cleave to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. They become one. So that this idea that in marriage, one of the responsibilities we have is to leave, to cleave or to cling to, but to become one physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And today we're going to continue on in the book of Genesis, and we're going to look at a passage that I know is familiar to us, but it's a passage that I want us to unpack this morning where we learn so many profound truths, and it's the passage about the fall of mankind. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 3 is where I'm going to be. Genesis chapter 3, go ahead and turn there if you would. And as we look at this passage, we're going to learn some things about the enemy we have. We're going to learn some things about what sin does and, and how it impacts us. And then we're going to end today looking at God's plan. Because we can't talk about Genesis 3 without ending with God's plan for humanity. So if you have your Bibles, the first thing I want you to notice is that we as our enemy. When we look at these first few verses, one thing we will discover is some truths about our enemy. Look at verse 1 with me. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The first thing we learn about our enemy is He's crafty. Anybody in the room think you're crafty? Anybody? You're like, I don't want to be tied to the serpent. So no, no. But you're probably crafty, right? The word crafty just means wise or, or subtle. And now when we look at this passage, this, this idea of the serpent, now we know that the serpent here does not tell us specifically that the serpent is the devil or Satan. But the more you read scripture, we definitely get the idea that the serpent is Satan. That Satan has come. He's coming to tempt Eve. And it says that he is more crafty than any other beast that's been created. That word crafty just means he's wise. He's subtle. I don't know you, but when I was a kid, and you probably had this imagery too, I pictured the devil in a red costume with horns and a pitchfork. Anybody else like that? Yeah. Some of you are like too ashamed to raise your hand. But like that's, that's what we learned, right? That's kind of what we thought about him. But can I say to you, if he came to you like that, we would all run to Jesus, wouldn't we? Amen. All of us would. So he doesn't do that. He's wise. He's subtle. And the idea of him being wise means he has very thoughtful plans of attack. 
He's very wise. He thinks thoroughly about how he's going to attack us. And when he comes at us, he tries to fly below the radar. Why? Because he's crafty. He's wise. He's subtle. And so right out of the gate, we learn here that the, the serpent, the devil, is more crafty. And then we learn some other things about him. Look with me in verse 1 through 6. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said, the serpent said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you what? Die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, and then she does something. Let's stop there. So she saw that it was, it was good to the eyes, and that it was good to make one wise. So here's what we learned about the enemy. Now is he crafty, but listen to me. The enemy has a strategy. And we see the strategy in those five verses that I just read. The first thing we see is that the enemy tries to create doubt. Look at verse 1 again. He said, he said to the woman, did God actually say? What does the enemy want to do for her? He said, listen, I know what Adam's told you, Eve. I know that. But did God really say that? Come on. Are you, real, like, are you 100% sure? I mean, did he kind of say it? Did he kind of say it in passing? I mean, it was one of those kind of things that was implied. I mean, are you sure, Eve? Did God really, really, really tell you that? Now, what does Eve do? Eve's like, no, I'm confident. Because <laughs> there's exactly what God said. God said, listen, we can have all the trees in the garden, but there's one right smack dab in the middle. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said, don't eat of it. In fact, don't even touch this tree, because if you touch it, you will what? You'll die. And, but the enemy starts with this idea of doubt. He wants Eve to doubt what God said. He wants her to doubt, can God truly be trusted? Surely God didn't say that, Eve. Listen, he created this beautiful garden. He, cre he created Adam, and he created you from Adam. I mean, surely God didn't say that. Doubt. Hear me on this church. That is still one of his strategies today. Doubt. And then he also moves on from doubt, and look what he does as in verse 4 and 5. He says, but then the serpent said to the woman again, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be what? Opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He moves from doubt to deception. He moves from doubt to deception. And you know what deception is, right? Deception is a little bit of truth mixed with a lie. Are you with me on that, church? Deception is when the enemy takes truth and pairs it with a lie. That is deception. Now, what is the truth? The truth is this. He did not lie to Adam and Eve about what they would know. If they ate of the tree, they were going to know what God knew. They were going to have their eyes open, and they were going to understand for the first time ever the difference between good and evil. So he wasn't lying about that. He was not lying that when they, they take of this tree, that they will know as God knows. But did God ever want them to know that? Ever look at me? Did God want them to know that? No, he didn't want them to know that. He did not want them to know what good and evil was because God knew what good and evil was. God knew what sin would do. He's like, listen, don't eat of this. Look, you have everything. But not this. Now, we know how hard that is, don't we? 
especially if you had small kids, right? They've got a 2,000 square foot house to run through and do whatever they want in, but there's like one cabinet that they can't get in, and guess where they go every single day? That one cabinet, and they'll just, they'll just get right by it, and they'll look at you, and they'll look at you, and they'll look at you, and right when you say, no, 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 what do they do? They touch the door, no, 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 don't open that, and they open the door, and then when you stand up, they shut the door, and they run away, right? Because we're all wired that way. He's like, listen, no one is he trying to create doubt in our he created deception, and the deception was, you're going to know as God knows, that's truth, but here's the lie. He says, surely you won't die. That's the lie. He paired a truth with a lie. He's like, surely you're not going to die. In other words, listen, God loves you. He created you. Look, if he created this garden for you, why would he not want you to take that truth? Listen, here's what the deception that, that Satan was selling Eve. Now listen to me. You might want to write this down because this is huge for us. Here's the deception. Eve, God's holding out on you. That's what the deception was. Eve, God's holding out on you. Because if you eat of that tree, you're going to know, you know that tree, you're going to know as God knows. God's holding out on you, Eve, because guess what? God's not going to kill you. God's not going to take you out. He just created you, right? He's not going to take you out. Listen, Eve, God is holding out on you. So he moves from doubt to deception. And then look what he does in verse 6. He didn't stop there. And it says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now, this is the first time we ever see that Eve has paused and noticed this tree. And all of the garden also knows there's also a tree in the middle of the garden known as the tree of life, right? And then there's this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And this is the first time we've noticed that Eve has stopped and she's paused and she's recognized, hey, this tree looks good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that there was a tree that was desired to make one wise. First time she noticed this tree and that it was desirable. Now listen to me on this church. The enemy tried to create doubt in Eve's heart. Then he moves to deception, and now he tries to plant desire. He tries to plant this desire in Eve's mind that, hey, listen, that tree's a pretty good-looking tree, isn't it? That tree's beautiful. You know why it's beautiful? Yes, it's just pretty because God created it. But Eve, that tree can do for you what everybody wants. Everybody wants to be wise. I mean, don't we all want to be wise? Come on, do we all want to be wise this morning, church? Sure, we do, but at what cost? Hey, everybody wants to be wise, Eve. Come on. He just plants the seed of desire in Eve. And now for the first time, she sees this tree and goes, it does look pretty good. And I really do kind of want to be wise. And the fruit on it looks really good, too. I'm at a perfuffle moment, right? I'm at a dilemma moment. What am I going to do with this? See, we need to know that our enemy is craftiness enough that he has strategically planned his attacks in our lives. Now, here's something I hope we all can walk away with this morning. Do you think the enemy still works like that today in our lives? Come on, do you think he acts that way with us? Hey, I tell you, there's not a day that goes by that the enemy doesn't want you to doubt God. There's not a day that the enemy goes by that the enemy does not want you to pause and think, can God truly be trusted? I mean, you can't talk about what we'll go. I mean, look at the world we live in. It is broken, amen? The world we live in is broken. I mean, it's, it's, it's battered. I mean, people are rebellious and people are evil and wicked and what Putin is doing is of the devil. And it's, I mean, we look at the world and go, okay, if there was a good God, I mean, if there was really a God who was loving, this wouldn't be happening. So I'm not sure I can trust God. That's the voice of the enemy. 
He wants us to doubt God's trustworthiness. We can't tell you what else he wants to do. He wants us to buy into his deception that God's holding out on you. Listen, let me tell you the greatest example of that is when we think about the intimacy that comes between a husband and wife when they get married, the, thing, the, the, the marriage bed, the, the consummation of a marriage. Listen, God created it, God ordained it, and it is pleasing to the Lord. As we talked about last week, physically two becoming one. But the world we live in has perverted it and is selling this message to those before they're married. Hey, listen, God's holding out on you. Hey, you love them anyway. Don't bother. Don't, don't, just go ahead and cohabitate. It's not that big of a deal. Just go ahead and experience the physical oneness. You're going to get married one day. Don't, don't worry about it. Just take the step. Listen, he's deceiving us to thinking God is holding out on us. Like God knows something that's precious, but God's holding back from us. Listen, when you come to the cross of Christ, if there's anything God didn't do was hold out on us. He gave everything he had for us. And the enemy wants us to buy this idea of deception. But he also wants to plant a notion of desire in us. And you know what this notion of desire he plants in, he planted in Eve and he tries to plant in us? is desires that always take us away from obedience to the Lord. Always. And so this morning we learn a lot about our enemy. And I want you to know this morning I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to alarm you. But I am trying to put you on high alert. We too have an enemy. And he is wise and he is crafty. And he wants us to doubt God's trustworthiness. He wants us to buy into deception. And he wants to plant seeds of desire that will take us away from a life of obedience to the Lord. He's just that crafty. And you need to know it this morning. And then we learn something else as we continue on. We learn a lot about sin. We learn a lot about sin. Look at me at the very end of verse 6. After she saw the tree was wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it and also gave some to her husband because misery likes company, right? Who was with her and guess what he did? Because we're just not that smart. He ate, right? Now listen, this serpent, the devil, this enemy comes trying to create doubt deceiving her, trying to get her to, to buy into these desires. And what we see in this passage, the last half of verse 6, here's what we see. We see that she buys the deception and she follows the desire that was in her heart. She follows the desire and she takes of the fruit and she eats it and then she gives it to her husband and he eats it and sin comes into the world. Now listen, as we continue on this story, we're going to learn what sin does. And listen, this is important because this is not just true of Adam and Eve. It's true for you and me. Look what sin does as we continue to read. First of all, sin causes shame. Look at me in verse 7. It says this. Then the eyes of both were what? Opened. They were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what sin does is sin causes shame. Were they naked before the fall? Come on, that's not a trick question. Were they naked before the fall? Yes, they were. But there was no shame. There was no perversion. There was nothing that was exposed that was dirty or ugly. But when sin came into the world, they recognized the dirt and the exposure of themselves. And that led them to shame. And what did they do? They tried to cover it up. They got figs and they sewed them together to cover their bodies up. Sin always leads to shame. Now listen, I know this because I guarantee there's somebody in this room today that you say you're a follower of Christ, but the enemy's winning in your life because he's keeping you filled with shame and guilt for all the things that you've done. 
You are wearing your shame and you are wearing your guilt. Some of you are wearing it in your heart. Some of you are wearing it on your face. But you are wearing the weight of shame and guilt this morning. Because that's what sin does. It always leads to shame and guilt. But sin also leads and, and leads us to fear. Look with me in verse 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord. Now, come on, let's pause for a moment. My dad, I've said this before, my dad is an incredible guy. He loved the Lord late in life. But when I was a kid, not so much. And so my dad was 6'4", 270. And, and my mom did something. We talk about it now. We joke about it. But she did something. I'm like, you should have never done this, mom. In parenting class, they should have told you not to do this. But she, we, she, she had three of us. And so she was trying to help us along because my dad worked on the railroad. And so he'd be gone two or three days at a time. And so she would get tired because I was the perfect child. And my sister wasn't. And my brother wasn't. That's pretty much true. I'm just going to say it. But anyway, she, she got tired of disciplining us. And she would end up saying this. You just wait till your father gets home. So we could hear the truck pull into the driveway. And guess what we did? Do you think we ran to the door going, Dad's home? We looked at how could we hide and get away, right? I want there to be maybe, maybe my dad will get in and maybe she'll forget what she never forgot. But there, can you imagine the moment when they've sinned and they feel their shame and now all of a sudden there's fear that sets in because they hear the Lord. Did you pick up on that? Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord. It probably sounded a lot like Jaws in that moment, right? Done, done. Anyway, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord and got among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? Now, did God know where they were at? Yeah, he did. Look what he says. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was what? Afraid. I was afraid. Listen to me. Sin leads to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about this, you know, you think about why were they afraid? Well, because God had told them if you eat of the tree, if you touch it, what's going to happen? You're going to die. And there's fear that's in it. But can I tell you really why I think they were fearful? Is because I don't feel like they really understood the magnitude of God's unconditional love. I don't think they understood, yes, they're going to die. Yes, there's going to be consequences. But that doesn't negate the fact that God loves them. And he doesn't love them a little bit. He doesn't love them partially. He loves them unconditionally. And they struggle with that. And I was the same way when I was a kid. My mom, when she would spank us, she's what I call a spastic spanker. And she always had those isotoner house shoes. How many remember those? They had a little flop, little flop in them, okay? And she would take those, not the fly swat, not even a stick that my dad would take the belt off, but she would grab her isotoner house shoes and she would just spank us. Now, the thing for me was I got spankings frequently because it was always my sister's fault, but I got blamed for it. But I would never, she would like lay over the bed, Douglas, because you knew you were in trouble when you got called Douglas, and to lay over the bed. Was well, a kid, you think I was laying over that bed and just like holding a pose and getting whipped? No, I'm running around the house. And so she's chasing me all around the house, all around the bed. She's spanking me. And I always said this, and I'll never forget it. As she's spanking me, I would say these words. Mama, I love you. Do you love me? <laughs> now, why would I say that? Because I didn't equate discipline with love. I didn't equate my mom's unconditional love for me and that meant she also was going to spank me, right? And I think one of the reasons they were so fearful is because they didn't understand God's amazing unconditional love. So well, guess what they did? Sin also does something else. And not only brings shame, it leads to fear. Sin wants to hide. Did you pick up in verse 10 what it said? It says, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I did what? I 
in myself. Can I just say this when it comes to sin? It is not human nature to want to deal with sin. What is human nature is we want to cover it up and hope it just goes away. Right? That's how we all operate. We think if we can hide it, we think we can cover it up, we think if we can ignore it long enough, it will simply just go away. Does it ever happen that way? No. And so sin wants to hide. But listen to this. Look at verse 11. Sin also wants to blame someone else. Verse 11 says, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the true which I commanded you not to? Pause. I want you to take responsibility, Adam. I'm giving you a window of opportunity. I mean, who told you were naked? Did you do the very thing I told you not to do? Now, if Adam was going to take responsibility, what would Adam's answer been? Yes. Is that what Adam said? No. Look what Adam says. He says this, verse 12, the man said, it was the woman who you gave to be with me, and she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Now listen, this is like really terrible. I mean, Adam doesn't just blame Eve, he blames who? God. It's the woman you created, God. Now think about that for a moment. Hey, it's not just Eve's fault. Eve, I mean, Eve should not have given me the, the fruit. I mean, it wasn't an apple, by the way. Well, she shouldn't have given me the fruit. I mean, she should have known better why she wanted misery to join her. I mean, I don't know, but, but it's, it's her fault. But God, you're the one that created her. I mean, do you see anywhere that Adam is taking responsibility for his decision? No, he's pawning off on Eve. And if that doesn't work, he's like, God, listen, I know you're kind of eternal. I know you kind of spoke things in existence. I know you love me, but it's kind of your fault too, God. Now, that's crazy to say that to God, isn't it? And it doesn't stop there. Look what happens next, verse 13. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said what? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, here's what I know about sin. Sin always wants to blame somebody else. I don't know about you, but I'm really good at excuses. Anybody else good at excuses? And I'm really good that when I blow it, trying to justify the reason that I blew it. And typically, if I can pawn it off on somebody else's fault, that's probably where my nature is going to go. Because I don't ultimately and fully and completely want to take responsibility for my own evil, wicked, sinful actions. But we have to. See, we've got to learn to take responsibility for the decisions, the choices, the actions that we take. And sin always leads us down a path of wanting to blame somebody else. And listen, I remember when my boys were little, and you hear this massive crash in the room with James and, and, and David and Daniel, and you walk in, of course, Daniel's the, the David's the smallest one, and you walk in the room, and all three of them, and they were like, what happened, boys? And because David was the smallest one, they all point to David. It's David's fault. Well, I know that something that's eight feet up in the air that got broken wasn't my two-year-old son pulling that one off. I know it was probably my oldest son, right? But they blame him. Why? Because he was the easy target. And if he can take the rap for me, guess what? Whew, I get off scot-free. Listen, sin always, always brings, brings blame for someone else. We want to blame someone else. And then sin also always brings consequences. Look at me in verse 16 through 19. This is important to note. And so to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. Thanks, Eve. And pain you shall bring forth. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but you shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you, and pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In other words, here's the consequences, Eve. The consequences you're going to have added pain in childbirth. Adam, here's your consequence. You're now going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. Here's the ultimate consequence. For the wages of sin is what? Death. Now hear me on this. Sin always has consequences. Now I want to say something loving. You may pull one over on your spouse. You may pull one over on your parents. But you pulled nothing over the eyes of God. He knows all things. And there's always consequences for our sin. But there's one more thing I want you to notice about sin. And it's this, that sin leads to separation. Look at me in verse 24, what it says. This is a terrible passage in chapter 3. He drove out man, and to the east of the garden, Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, separation is what Adam and Eve experienced. They were kicked out of the garden. Now listen to me. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when we sin, we're separated in the sense of our fellowship with God is broken. We still have a relationship. I'm, I've not lost my salvation. I'm still a child of God. But our fellowship has been broken because I've sinned against God. And the reason we ask for forgiveness is not because God hasn't already forgiven us, but we want to restore fellowship. If you got that, say amen. Because we need to know that. But for those of us that don't know Christ, sin separates us. And if we leave this world and die not knowing Christ, it will be an eternal separation that happens. Why? Because sin always leads to separation. I want you to hear me as I move on to the last thing. Sin does the same thing for us. It creates shame and guilt in our lives. Sin leads to fear. Sin always wants to hide. Sin always blames someone else. It was never your fault. It was always somebody else. But sin always has consequences. And sin always separates. Now listen, I know that's a hard reality. But we got to think through that this morning. And so for those of us that don't know Christ, you don't want to be eternally separated from him. And those of us that do know Christ, you want to restore your fellowship with him as quickly as possible by repenting. But there's one more thing I want you to notice. We see the truth about our enemy. We see the truth about sin. And the last thing I want you to notice is we see in this passage the truth about God's plan for rescue. See, I love this story because it doesn't just end with the enemy. It doesn't just end with the sin and the pain of the sin, them wallowing in the sin. It isn't, this doesn't end there. We see in this story God's plan. Listen, did you know that even before the foundation of the world, God knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin and God still had a plan in place? And so we see God's plan. And there's really two pieces of this plan. The first one is we see a future rescue that's going to happen. Look with me in verse 14 and 15. A future rescue that's going to happen. So the Lord says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the fields of the beasts of the fields. And on your belly you shall go. Now, some of you wonder, well, what does that mean? Well, many scholars would tell you that they believe the serpent was upright like every other beast of the field on legs. But because of this, it's now cursed to crawl on the belly of the ground. That's why we don't see any snakes uprise, but they crawl on the ground. And dust shall you eat and all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity or hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. 
heal. Now, here's what's going on. Here's what God is doing. He says, listen, you think you've won, serpent, but I'm cursing you. And I'm cursing you to have to slither and crawl and basically be the scum of the earth for the rest of your life because what you've done is a pretty heinous thing to do. And so I'm cursing you. But he goes on to say, listen, you think you've won, but I want you to know that you ultimately will not win because one day, listen to me, one day you are going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. In other words, he's talking about Jesus. You're going to wound Jesus. And we know that's true because Isaiah 53 says he has been wounded for our transgressions. One day you're going you're gonna to wound and injure the Savior of the world. But listen to me, and you're going to wound him and you're going to wound his heel. But that Savior of the world is going to take his heel and he's going to crush your head. And we see that happen in the resurrection of Christ. When Jesus came back from the grave, he overcame death hell, and the grave. No longer did the enemy have any authority, any power over anybody. He said, listen, you think you've won, but I want you to know something. I win in the end. You think you've won, but the ultimate victory is going to happen on the cross and the resurrection is going to be my victory, and I just want you to know that. So there's a future rescue that's going to happen, but then there's also the last thing I want you to know is a present rescue. When you think about God's plan for rescue, yes, there's a future one, but there's also a present rescue. Look at me in verse 20 through 21 as we close. The man called his wife named Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Now, most of the time we skip over this. But this is really a picture of the present rescue God was offering them. See, when God should have just offered them wrath, he offered them grace. You with me on that? Are you with me on that, church? When he should have just been wrathful with them, he was graceful to them. And it says here, look, go back to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam, for his wife, garments of skins, and he clothed them. It's the first time in Scripture that we see this notion of bloodshed. Because how do they get the skins of animals to clothe them? An animal had to what? Die. And they didn't do it. It says God provided for them. So God provided a sacrifice that the blood would have to be shed of an animal so they could take the skins of that, and those skins would become a covering for them. It's a beautiful picture of how the blood of the shed of an animal is the covering for their sin. I mean, most scholars would say this is a picture of how God had forgiven Adam and Eve for all that they have done. Now, isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus has done for us? The perfect Lamb of God died on a cross, shedding his blood so that if we put our faith in him, his blood covers our sin. See, it wasn't just about a future God going to get even with Satan. It's about a right now moment where God says, listen, Adam and Eve, I love you, and there's a path to rescue, and I'm going to provide this for you. I'm going to provide an animal, which Adam obviously slayed the animal, and the blood was shed, and they took the skins, and they covered themselves as a picture of how our sins need to be covered. The scripture says this in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's what? No forgiveness of sin. And they experienced that. And listen, we experienced that with what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so this morning, here's what I hope we realize this morning. I hope we realize as we get ready to leave, we have an enemy. I know that's not great news, but you need to know it's real news. You and I, we have an enemy. And he will do, try to do the same thing to us they did to Adam and Eve. He will try to create doubt. He will try to deceive us. He will try to plant desires in us that will take us away from the Lord. We have an enemy. And quite frankly, oftentimes we buy into the deception, don't we? 
Oftentimes we listen to those voices of desire and we sin. And when we sin, guess what? We feel shame. When we sin, we feel fear. When we sin, we want to hide. When we sin, we want to blame somebody else. But we need to realize that even though we sin, there's still a way back. There is still a way to be in right relationship with the Father. And it's through a personal relationship with Christ. Listen, I have this conversation often with people. And they say things like this. Well, they're a good person. Listen, Scripture is clear. There's no one good. No, not one. On your best day, with your best effort, with your best attitude, you're not going to be good enough to get into heaven. You're not going to be good enough to have your sins forgiven. The only way your sins can be covered and you can now have a right relationship with God is if you accept what Jesus has done for you on the cross and say, I I believe that what he did and the blood that he shed is sufficient to cover my sin. And I put my faith in him. Now, here's a question, simple question. Have you done that? Have you done that? So about you, but if a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're, if you're a believer in the room today, listen, it's okay to know that we have an enemy, but, and it's okay to know that we sin, and, and we need to kind of pinpoint the struggles when we sin. But listen, because of what Jesus done for me, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I no longer have to pay the penalty of my sin. I'm no longer under the power of sin. Today, I can stand, and I can sing, and I can celebrate it that I have been set free. Anybody else been set free in the room? And you should celebrate that. And so for Believer's Day, here's how we're going to celebrate. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. And just a moment, when the band leads us in a song, as you feel led, I'm going to ask you to come to any one of these tables. And you can grab the elements. And I challenge you to take them back with you to your seat. And as you've taken time, and listen, I don't care what, what your church you're a member of, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to join us in communion. And when you get back to your t- seat, here's what we know Scripture says, that when before we take the supper, we need to pause and remember what Christ has done for us. Remember the body that was beaten and the blood that was shed. And then we need to examine our own hearts. Where am I at this morning? Am I trying to blame somebody with my sin? Am I trying to hide and cover it up? And wherever you find yourself today, would you just repent? Would you just cry and say, God, you know my sin, you know my failures, and God, I confess to you today, I want to restore my relationship with you. And once we've remembered and once we've examined on your own, as you feel led, as they sing, would you peel back that first later and take that, that wafer and go, you know what, this represents the body that was beaten for me. And then you take back the next layer and you take the juice remembering the blood that was shed for you. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, today, if you've been set free, I know you wrestle with sin. I know you wrestle with what sin does, just like Eve does. And we have an enemy, just like Adam and Eve had. I know we know that. But listen, today, we stand not condemned. We stand forgiven. And if that's your story today, would you celebrate us this morning together? Would you come in a moment as you feel led and grab a communion cup, go back to your seat, and as the Lord leads you after you remember and examine, take the Lord's Supper. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're one of those people who think you're a good person. I try really hard. I'm doing the best I can. You know, I would love to think that I could dunk a basketball. And I could do the best that I could do. But you know what? The best I can do, I have about a half-inch vertical. It's not very high. I am never, ever, ever going to dunk a basketball on a 10-foot gold. No matter how hard I try, no matter how bad I want it, No matter how much I think about it, it's not going to happen for me. 
And if you think you're good and that's going to be good enough, you're, going to, you're always going to fall short of the mark that of perfection that God has set for you. And maybe today for the first time you need to surrender your life and swallow your pride and say, yes, today I accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. And if that's you today, I'm going to ask you not to take the supper. I'm going to ask Jason Belcher is going to be right over there by that, those curtains, and I'm going to be standing right over here. And as we sing, if you need to accept Jesus today, if you want to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life, or if you just want to nail it down because you're not certain, would you go grab Jason? Would you grab me? And we'll take you off to the side and would love to pray with you and to lead you to the greatest decision you'll ever make. So what do you need to do this morning? Believer, join us at the table. If you don't know Christ, don't leave here not knowing him. Let's all stand together. Everybody stand with me. Every head bowed and every eye closed. As we stand. Every head bowed and every eye closed. For so much of the book of Genesis 3, it seems kind of gloom. An enemy that attacks, sin that tries to hide and cover up, but the beautiful thing about Genesis 3 is God still has a plan to rescue his people. That he still desperately loves us. Despite our sins, despite our failures, despite our rebellion, he loves us. And if you've accepted that and you know that you've been set free and that you are a child of the Most High God, would you celebrate this morning? Would you confess whatever sins in your heart? Would you take responsibility for it? But would you celebrate by taking the Lord's Supper today, grabbing it and remembering, remembering what he's done, examining your own heart and taking it, thinking about the sacrifice Jesus made for you and I. And if you don't know him, would you just say yes today? If you're unsure, say, I just don't know. We'll nail it down. Eternity's too long for you not to be sure. If you need to make that decision, Jason will be on one side and I'll be on the other. We would love to share with you the good news of Jesus. So please be faithful to respond this morning. God, I love you. And I thank you for today. And God, while I look at the story, I, I, I pray that for all of us, that we are on high alert this morning, that we have a real enemy who's really wise, who's going to try to create doubt and create desire and to try to deceive us, Lord. And oftentimes we would be honest if we, if we were just said that we know that we've given in to that. But God, I pray this morning for believers that we would take responsibility for our sin. And that we realize because we belong to you as believers, because we've been set free, we don't have to live in that shame. We don't have to live in that guilt. We don't have to try to hide and cover it up because you know it all. We can live as children who've been set free, who are forgiven, who are accepted, who are loved, who belong to you. And so today I pray we would celebrate, Lord, through the supper. But God, I pray for maybe those people here today, that one or two, that thinks they're good. I think they can work hard enough, do enough right stuff. Would you remind them there's only one way to eternal life? There's only one way to right standing with you, and it's through Jesus, accepting him as our Savior. So God, if somebody needs to do it today, would you give them the courage to make that decision? Would you give them the courage to simply say, I know that I'm a sinner, and I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me for my sin and to come into my life and to be my boss and my master? Would you give them the courage to pray that, Lord? 
Would you give them the courage to step out of their, their rows and to find Jason over to the left or me over to the right and, and to say, would you lead me in, in how to know Jesus? God, would you give them the courage to have their eternity changed today in this very moment? So God, we love you. We thank you. And I pray with everything in me that we would be faithful to respond as you lead us. For it's in your precious and your holy and your gracious and your amazing son's name that we pray. Amen. As you feel led, just move. When you're ready to come grab the supper, just take it. If you need to know Christ, Jason will be right over there and I'll be right over here. Just come find us. However the Lord is leading you, just be faithful this morning to respond as the band leads us.